You're listening to This Old Tree, the show about heritage trees and the human stories behind them. I'm Doug Still. The place is Concord, Massachusetts, the year 1856. At 10 a.m. on a January day, four men began removing a huge American elm tree trunk using block and tackle and ropes drawn by a horse. The upper branches had been removed a few days before. Prior to this, the tree along the main road was seemingly healthy and was a village marker seen by everyone passing through the old colonial town. The tree towered above a house owned by Mr. and Mrs. Charles B. Davis, but they heard some creaking in a storm that winter and said one of the branches was cracked. They were fearful and wanted it down. The event would have been long forgotten, except one of America's greatest writers and earliest environmentalists also lived in Concord, Henry David Thoreau. The removal of the stately elm set him off, at least in a flurry of journal writing. Today's episode is about why the tree was such a touchstone for him, and more broadly, why the American elm was so important to the character of New England towns in the 19th century, and ultimately streetscapes across the country to the present day. I have a wide-ranging discussion about it with my guest, Thomas Campanella, professor and historian at Cornell University, who wrote the fascinating book, Republic of Shade, New England and the American Elm. It turns out, elm trees help define our young nation's sense of itself. Real or constructed, you can decide for yourself. Thanks for joining me today. I'm your host, Doug Still, and welcome to This Old Tree. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say if you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a tree lover. So speaking for most of us, we've all felt those feelings of loss that Thoreau felt that day in January 1856. Perhaps you once heard the buzzing of chainsaws near your home to find out that a neighbor has taken down a mature oak tree, say. Or maybe a developer cleared all the trees from an entire lot in order to build a house and couldn't bother to save even the biggest. Or in the name of progress, a road project bludgeoned its way through the roots of a grand old street tree, leading to its demise with the explanation that it couldn't be saved. Maybe some of the reasons were good, maybe not, but there was no mistaking that feeling in your gut of irrevocable loss of both an honorable life and the repository of fond memories. Believe me, as City Forester have experienced firsthand the raw emotions of residents spurred by the removal of trees, young and old. Thoreau had published Walden just a few years before, the work for which he is best known. It is a memoir of living alone on nearby Walden Pond for two years, a celebration of nature and simple living. It had precise measurement and observation of his natural surroundings, and described a great appreciation for the rhythms of life we take for granted. A transcendentalist, Thoreau wove a spiritual dimension throughout the book with reflections on solitude and meditation. But Thoreau's writing also offered some bite toward materialistic contemporary culture and the foolishness of some of his peers, especially politicians. 
The removal of the conquered elm tree brought out his cranky side. Brilliant and intellectual, but cranky nonetheless. After describing the takedown in great detail and taking measurements of the old friend, he said that if the town clerk won't chronicle the tree's fall, then he would. For it is of greater moment to the town than that of many a human inhabitant would be. Instead of erecting a monument to it, we take all possible pains to obliterate its stump, the only monument of a tree which is commonly allowed to stand. He claims to have eulogized the tree, but it seems to me that a sort of pissed-off sourness was just below the surface. He wrote, I've attended the felling and, so to speak, the funeral of this old citizen of the town, I who commonly do not attend funerals, as it became me to do so. I was the chief, if not the only mourner there. I have taken the measure of his grandeur, has spoken a few words of eulogy at his grave, but there were only the choppers and the passers-by to hear me. Further, the town was not represented. The fathers of the town, the selectmen, the clergy were not there. But I have not known a fitter occasion for a sermon of late. Since its kindred could not attend, I attended. I'm paraphrasing different parts, but he goes on that, Methinks its fall marks an epoch in the history of the town. It has passed away together with the clergy of the old school and the stagecoach which used to rattle beneath it. Its virtue was that it steadily grew and expanded from year to year to the very last. How much of old Concord falls with it? Another link that bound us to the past has been broken. I had the privilege of talking about all this with Tom Campanella. Because this old tree in Concord was an American elm, I learned that its loss was charged with symbolism that reached into our national identity. Thomas Campanella is Professor of History and Regional Planning at Cornell University, and he has written extensively about the history of American urbanism and landscape especially in New York City and in particular Brooklyn. He's also written about urbanism and city planning in China and the rapid growth happening there. But what brings Tom to us today is his work on the cultural importance of the American elm in American history, especially in New England. He wrote a book in 2003 called Republic of Shade, New England and the American Elm, which won the Spiro Kostoff Award from the Society of Architectural Historians. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so uh, happy to have you here today. I loved your book on the American Elm, and it's a great read for anyone who loves trees and history, which such as myself. And I learned a lot about why this tree holds such an esteemed place within the greater pantheon of trees. and. Yeah. Also because it helped define an image of the quintessential American town or streetscape. Yes, exactly. In um, real terms, but also within our memory and, and, and psyche. So we're going to come back to that in a minute. Yeah, sure. But I'd love to start by talking about one story in particular um, that you wrote about, um, about an American elm in Concord, Massachusetts. And the year is 1856. And this was a huge, gorgeous elm tree that stood over the house of Charles B. Davis, who ran the post office and was a storekeeper, apparently. Yeah. 
And it was known by everyone, especially the great American nature writer, Henry David Thoreau. And he wrote about this tree. And I was would love to ask you if you wouldn't mind describing what happened and why yeah. he wrote about this tree. Well, first of all, it, it's a testament to Thoreau's um, wonderful capacity to appreciate even the quotidian, you know, and the everyday Aside from trees, which are, I, I, I always uh, have felt that they tend to be very invisible to most people. Uh, it's remarkable to me how, um, you know, we are, we pay attention to almost every detail and minutia about the built environment. And yet somehow trees have, uh, have uh, long evaded our attention. And so to, to come across a thorough who, who vests so much meaning and 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 significance, you know, in trees, um, is is just such a joy. And and this tree in particular, to be honest, it is not a tree like the Weathersfield elm, which was you know maybe twelve feet in diameter. It, it is a it's a relatively young American elm by his measure. Uh, quite literally, it was 125, 127 years old. And of course, he is an inveterate tree ring counter. He counts tree rings the way he plumbed the depths of, of Walden Pond. And, you know, and he writes about how, you know, ignorance is so sticky and uh, and and persistent in that, you know, people would, you know, many townspeople in Concord continued uh, to believe that that Walden Pond had no, you know, that had no bottom, that it was it was, uh, you know, it, it was a uh, limitless in depth and or was, you know, many fathoms deep. And all he did was go out in a rowboat and and plumb the depths. And he came up with a number to prove that they were all being superstitious and ignorant. And the same thing about this elm which some people thought was 200 years old and others thought it was only 50 years old or something like that. He was like, just count the rings. He counts the rings, right? And and um, and he comes up with a number. And 127 years is not really that old for uh, a tree like an American elm, right? The Some of the great New England elms that um, I came across in the research for Republic of Shade were much older than that, twice you know, maybe even three times that age. But anyway, this tree, this elm that Thoreau talks about is, is um, it's not that. I think he says it's a, it's 15 feet in circumference, which is only maybe a four foot diameter breast height tree, right? It's big, um, but it's not a monster. It's certainly not one of the great, really big elms in New England at that time. Uh, and yet he mourns it and, and, and appropriately so. So this tree came down. Yes, it's cut down because, and, and this is something, you know, that I've encountered myself so many times, uh, regrettably, you know, it was a threat, you know, um, it's, you know, some creaking, yeah, some creaking sounds, ominous sounds were heard, uh, you know, which are, I think, quite dubious. But anyway, the, 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 the um, you know, the, I take it, it was the homeowner who was afraid that it might come down. On the house, like he thought they were. It was a little dubious as well. The way, yeah, he and, and, subtly and it probably it. was. I mean, trees creak. I mean, they they make noises. They're living entities. When the wind blows through, um, you know, a tree, it, it obviously creak. You know, I think Emerson wrote about uh, the the horse concert, uh, quote unquote, that uh, tree limbs, you know, brushing against the roof would make in a in, in the wind. But anyway, the tree comes down. 
And so it's in full leaf. I mean, it is looks healthy and there's yeah, a yeah, and it probably I mean, it probably was a perfectly healthy tree. It, it's just that when someone, you know, I've had people say this to me, they, they you know, the tree, you know, is near their house. And even if it fell, it wouldn't even reach the house. And yet it's a um, even on campus um, at, at Cornell, we, you know, we, we we used to have heritage trees. And, you know, in the UK, there's a whole program about protecting heritage trees. We we seem to have hazard trees now. Some of the oldest trees on the Cornell campus, you know, 200, 250 year old oaks have come down in recent years, perfectly healthy trees. We're a litigious society and yeah, there's well, also there, a fear of large trees. Yeah, the risk management people. I always joke the risk management office at Cornell is like the basically runs the university. I can say this because I'm tenured, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and and so anyway, you know, if a tree is deemed a hazard, then all the other values go out the window, uh, even if it, it is perfectly healthy and poses really no hazard at all. So this tree comes down lamentably. And um, and it 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 seems that Doro is, is perhaps the only person who appreciates and mourns the passing of this tree. So it, it it I think more than just that tree, right? It becomes a symbol and a touchstone for Doro, representing the elm generally, and I think trees and nature generally. So he eulogized the tree, or at least he said he did. He, yeah, that's right. And but he said there's no one here to hear this eulogy. <laughs> there right. are no town selectmen. And there right. was another tree in, in Massachusetts, the, the Deerfield Elm, or the oh. literary elm that you wrote about, that was removed in 1853, so three years earlier. And it was in the press, and they had a memorial service and right. all That's the right. town dignitaries in town. So I'm wondering if he was referencing that in a way, like in Maybe. Deerfield, they had this big yeah. Memorial service in here. There's nobody here. Yeah, no, that that was that was a monster, that elm. I, I there's a photo in my book of um, a local antiquarium sort of mourning um the, you know, standing there. And he's quite elderly with a long white beard. So there's a certain symmetry between man and tree. But also remember Deerfield had a different uh, presence in the cultural memory of New England at that time. Uh, you know, now, you know, we look back at Concord as having this enormous historical uh, significance because of people like Emerson and Thoreau and, and Margaret Fuller and, and others, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne. But, but um, I think they looked to Deerfield as uh, in an equivalent dimension that we look um, perhaps to Concord today. So, so I think that's why that tree got more press and more coverage. Um, you know, it, it was a, a storied tree. I can't remember the details, but it, it, it was, a, you know, it was, a, I think, a witness to the clashes with Native Americans that occurred in Deerfield, um, you know, many, many decades or a century earlier. So what did Thoreau feel was lost when this tree came down? Well, I, I think aside from the the magnificence of it as a as a, a natural being, right, as, as, as a representative of the natural world, I, I think he... He felt it was it was a, a witness, and you know these witness trees were a, you know a, a real presence in the in the Yankee landscape in the 19th century because they were said to have been there and witnessed these historical moments. Right, some of them were were you know the subject of enormous exaggeration and inaccuracy. Uh, the Washington Elm in Cambridge is the best example of that. 
Um, but but I think that's part of it, right? He 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 mourned the fact that no one seemed to appreciate that this was a tree that uh, was present in the birth, you know, at, at the moment of the birth of this town, or at least its nascent, uh, you know, its its uh, its early years, right? 127 years is, it doesn't really go back to the actual founding, but close, right? And um, you write of that he or people at that time felt that elms in a way consecrated the landscape. Right. So compared to, you know, the white spires of the churches that they, they linked earth and in heaven. Could you talk about that a little yeah. bit? Uh, well, um, that's actually a, uh, that's actually a concept that, that, um, uh, Mircea Eliad writes about or wrote about this notion of a, um, a, um, a, an axis mundi, right? Latin for basically a, a pivot of the world um, that links the sacred and the profane, right? And yeah, the church steeple, the meeting house steeple is, you know, a very classic example. Um, and we have that verticality in many, many cultures. You look at some of the, the temples in, um, in, you know, classical Indian architecture, you know, is also that vertical, that point of connectivity, um, between the realms, the heavens and the and the earth, yeah. There's a certain symmetry that emerges between the temple. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the 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 meeting house steeple, the church steeple in New England, and the towering solitary elm. Right. Uh, in many towns, there was a a single elm, often from the settlement period or reputedly from the settlement period. That was a totem, right? It, it had a totemic role. When I, you think of early drawings or etchings of a New England town, and they're they're picking an image to choose to represent that town, it's usually the meeting house or right. the church, and then an elm. Yeah, I think, uh, and that sort of became this this image that we remember. And the spire is pointy, and the elm is sort of the opposite. It's like like a fountain. It's a fountain. It's, you know, that was one of the reasons why this tree was so embraced um, early on. It, it has this remarkably beautiful form and it is like a fountain spray, right? It's often referred, it's often described as a wine glass. I, I think of it more as a fountain spray and it's, it's remarkably beautiful. And, and the limb structure too, even in the, in the winter when the leaves are gone, it has this medusin sort of tangle of limbs that is just so beautifully sculptural. And when you put them next to each other as, you know, in a, line, a street or a, a commons that are lined with, it creates a, a remarkable image of a Gothic arch, which remember yeah. this is in the, in the middle years of the 19th century, this had itself a lot of significance because the Gothic, a lot of these architectural revivals were, architecture was very popular in that period, including the Gothic Revival. And often you have these streets referred to in those terms, that they were, you know, rough-hewn or unhewn cathedrals, right? And and this was a, a nation that had made, turned its profane streets into cathedrals. We're going to take a short break, but when we return, we'll hear more from Cornell professor Tom Campanella about Henry David Thoreau and the importance of the American elm in defining the character of American streets. You're listening to This Old Tree.
That's something I always used to say in describing, you know, what the streets used to look like when they were lined with American elms in their cities and towns, this cathedral-like canopy. And I would, I guess I just heard that from somewhere and I would sort of repeat it, but it's, it creates an image. It's just interesting to hear that there's this sort of other source or meaning to it from the 19th century. It's all connected. Yeah, and there were there was actually at least one attempt to create a cathedral with Elm. Uh, it was it was I think it was Montgomery Miggs' father. M Montgomery Miggs was a an architect who um, became very prominent in the in the uh, Civil War and post Civil War era. He 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 designed the old Pension Building in in Washington, which is where the National Building Museum is. But yeah, th there's there's that imagery, and and it's a it's a really remarkable. Um, you know, you and I are too young to remember the Elm Elms as a major presence in American towns and cities. Right. Um, but I often tell people, you know, who say, well, I, I really wish I could experience what it was, what Elm Street was like. And of all places, uh, I would say the best example, the best place to go to experience that is the Central Park Mall in New York City. The, the mall there, the, the, those elms are, are really reaching um, a glorious um, date of, of elder age. And, and they're, they're, it is really the closest thing I know of. I mean, Washington, yeah. all in Washington also, but those trees tend to be a bit smaller. And, that, and they lead up to Bethesda Fountain. Sure. And yeah. you, you sort of get a taste of the 19th century, I feel, in that Oh, yeah, that very landscape. much so. It is, it is a, yeah, it's a Victorian or middle 19th century to Victorian era landscape. So at that time, the forests of New England were denuded. I mean, they were cleared. Yeah. There's hardly any old growth forest left. Right. Um, our forests now are about 140 years old when they stopped doing the cutting. So at, in the 1850s, Thoreau's responding to why are we clearing all <laughs> in the forests? You know, and I think trees became a little bit more valuable to him, too, for that reason. Right. And I can see why they would gather under the trees, too, just for some shade and as a right. focal point. So so the interesting thing that and this is something that I uncovered and came across again and again in the early literature of New England. And, and especially I use the, you know, old uh, agricultural journals and, and newsletters to, to um, do some of the deep research for this book. But the, the elm was often, the, first of all, the elm does not grow in pure stands like some trees do, right? It is not a tree that you see many of or a pure stand of in, in the forest. It's a solitary tree, uh, much like the, the, the American sycamore. You know, you'll have one there and another one some hundred yards away. Or And it's also a bottomland and lowland tree, right? It's not an upland tree. So what happened is the, these, the elms were saved ironically, by their enormous size in many cases, or at least the older ones were. And the wood wasn't as valuable either. And that's the other thing. The wood was not very valuable. So, you know, when you cut a maple or an oak, you could get a return on it because the wood was was uh, sought after. Elm wood is, is very stringy. It's, it's hard to cut. It's got, you know, there are certain uses that it's appropriate for. But 
what I'm getting to here is the, the el- these solitary elms were often left behind. And so they gain a presence in the New England imagination, right? They are there. They're magnificent. They're beautiful. They have this form. And that is the seed stock for the later mass planting of this tree. Once we get to the, you know, the period of that we refer to as the village improvement era, the village improvement societies organize. And one of the main things they do, one of the first things they do is plant trees on the commons, on the streets in their towns to beautify them. There's a whole set of reasons why they were doing that, but they look to the American elm as their number one tree. I thought it was fascinating when you wrote about sort of prior to that movement that the nation was essentially, you know, had some insecurities or an inferiority complex with Europe and we were a young nation. And so the fashion was to plant exotics. Yeah, right. And there was one in particular that got planted a lot, the Lombardy poplar. Yeah, Lombardy poplar. That's right. And so the Lombardy poplar is this very columnar upright tree, pointy. It's one associates it with northern Italy or central Italy, Tuscany. Right. And sort of um, archaic landscapes, ruins, Italian towns. And very strong um, on the eye. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how you right. would describe it. They would they would plant. Yeah, the Lombardy poplar was a very popular <laughs> tree in the um, in the first few decades of the nineteenth century. Um, and um, you, there are images and etchings and drawings of, uh, for example, Pennsylvania. Uh, Avenue in Washington, lined, you know, from the White House up to the Capitol, lined with Lombardies. Um, there are countless uh, images of towns and cities uh, in the Northeast. Uh, and you see, as you said, it's such a, a distinctive tree. Even an amateur painter or artist could get them right. In Boston, streets were lined with these. And, and very uniform. Yeah, very uniform. And there, there, you know, there were two main reasons why it became so popular. First of all was the imagery and the associations, right? They were associated with the storied lands of antiquity, right? And this is an era when the uh, a lot of artists are going and studying and painting the the uh, classic these classical landscapes, right? And and so there's a certain um, a certain uh, uh, attraction there. The other reason, quite frankly, and this is also why the American elm is so um, embraced, is it is a, an extremely fast growing tree, right? So if you have a place that is as upstart and as unkempt and as kind of um, you know, daggy as as American towns were and cities were at this time. You want something that's going to bring a modicum of beauty quickly, right? You don't want to plant, uh, you know, a white oak and have to wait, you know, a century for it to create some. And and Lombardy poplar, Jesus, it must grow a foot a day in, in the you know in this early summer. Um, it doesn't last very long. That's the drawback. Um, uh, and but there's a there's a law and I you know what happens here is these exotics and it wasn't just the Lombardy Lombardy was a, a very popular one but another one was Elanthus uh, altissima the tree of heaven which um, is also a very rapid growing tree it is now on you know countless lists of invasive species uh, but it's a very tenacious tree it had its defenders even after the you know the the uh, the great backlash against exotics um 
uh, and it still has its defenders. I, 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 I am very fond of the tree of heaven, although some will call it the tree of hell. So it was brought from China. Yes. And it was, it was valued for its foliage and fast right. growing. And right. I actually have some close friends who live in a house built in 1790 here in Providence. Yep. And they have an enormous, enormous Atlantis. Wow. That frames the house and it's spectacular. And yeah. that it reading this makes me wonder how old that tree is and yeah. if it was yeah. if it dates that far back or not. It, it's um it, I, I you know it's it's hard to tell. I, I know of some em, enormous um uh, Atlantis trees in Brooklyn, actually. And um, you know, it's a tree that was uh, originally brought here to as part of an ill-fated um effort to to develop a native um an American silk industry, right? Because the along with mulberry too, and mulberry, right? And you know the um, what happened was the 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 Cynthia moth, the the moth that feed the larvae feed on Atlantis, didn't do very well in the climate. Uh, although they they are around. I when I was a teenager, I I the very first piece I ever published, essay I ever published, was about collecting these um, the tiny baby larvae. Uh, immature larvae uh, in a in an Atlantis grove along the Belt Parkway in Brooklyn and raising these moths, um, but the tree certainly has taken off. So I just want to read one passage from your book that yeah. made me laugh out loud, just because it was so interesting and sort of funny. And this back to the Lombardy poplar. Mm. The use of the Lombardy poplar in America may have had an even more distinguished pedigree. Samuel Eliot Morrison claimed that the tree had been introduced by none other than the classicist Thomas Jefferson. In the early decades of the 19th century, he wrote, it was a sign of unterrified democracy in New England to plant Lombardy poplars, the dendrological badge of Jeffersonian republicanism. <laughs> of course, the Federalists turned the badge against its benefactor, pointing out that the Lombardy's soft, pulpy wood and attraction for worms resembled the brain of the gentleman who introduced them. That's funny, yeah. <laughs> so it becomes this yeah. sort of uh, propaganda. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a wonderful passage. Um, and, and uh, yeah, I had forgotten about that. You know, what happens, though, with these trees is as the young American nation reaches adolescence and begins to, you know, find itself and flex its muscles and becomes more confident in, its, in itself and its culture, there's a, a huge backlash against these so-called right. exotics. And it can get pretty vehement and even racist at times. Yeah, and you mentioned that, um, particularly about the Atlantis. Right. Could you describe? Well, the, the, the Atlantis, um, as anyone who's struggled to uh, with it in, in their garden, will know or will recognize it it it's a it rapidly spreads by root um you know it, it sends out roots and it it sprouts from the roots there's a term. And this is the tree along train tracks and yeah. empty lots yeah. and it's a yeah. tree grows in brooklyn 
A tree grows in Brooklyn. Exactly. It's a very tenacious tree. It is a, it, it's an, ex, it, it, it spreads very rapidly, both by seed, but also by, by its root system. And so once it gets established, it's pretty hard to fight back. It, it, it's reminiscent of the more recent arrival here from Asia, the, um, the Japanese knotweed, which boy, you get that going. You, you really, you need a backhoe to excavate it out. Um, yeah. So, so what happens here is there's, um, as Americans discover their, you know, their, as they gain confidence, they start looking to the native trees, right? The trees of the American forest and saying, why don't we plant these trees? There's a native, there's a very strong nativist element. Or, or nationalism. Native plant movement. It's, it's a very nationalistic nativist and even racist uh, embrace of American trees, right? We don't want the, the foreigner. And, and what happens is that the um, Atlantis in particular gets painted in very racist terms that it's this, you know, I think the early and pioneering um, horticulturist and, and landscape designer, Andrew Jackson Downing, uh, is infamous for this because he, he, he refers to the Atlantis as I think he he uh, he describes it as a wily Asiatic, right? Uh, whose intermeddling roots um, are, are uh, threatening our American democracy or our American republic. I, I'm paraphrasing a little, um, and he he um, he quite vociferously advocates its its you know purging of this uh, tree, right? And so this maps to political uh, you know, movements at the time to to ban immigration from from China and from elsewhere in, in Asia. And this is when um, you really have the the uh, the wholesale embrace of American tree species, um, uh, including and primarily the American elm, at least in the northeastern part of the uh, New England. So in the 1830s and 1840s, this sort of movement to plant native trees, especially the elm, takes off. Yeah. There's this um, tree bee in Sheffield, Massachusetts. Sheffield. Yeah. What's the tree bee? Well, you know, what, what's going on in, in rural New England at this time is is a is a is a a really difficult passage actually for the residents and the um you know the these communities um these were very successful farming communities they were quite affluent in many cases and all of a sudden the rural agricultural economy goes into a very steep decline and these um you know the the uh the local leadership the uh, elected officials the elders of these towns um, are struggling to both keep the young people from leaving, um, but also they recognize over time, and this is more in the, in the second half of the 19th century, that affluent, successful um, folks who, who grew up in these towns, grew up in rural New England, and then went and found their fortunes in the Hartfords and the Bostons and the Springfields and the New York cities, they are, they are they want to come back to their roots. And there's the beginnings of uh, summer vacationing and tourism in these places. So if you combine these, um, the feeling was uh, we, we had better make these very beautiful, picturesque, attractive places. And, you know, when you stir into this mix, the iconography of courier knives, for example, 
you know, the elm tossed, you know, New England green or common with its church and meeting house steeple, that becomes something people expect, right? That's what they're looking for and that's what they want. And many, many New England towns didn't have that. Uh, there were plenty of towns where the, the common was just a scruffy field, right? It had no town. And so what happens is there's a movement throughout. It starts in the Berkshires and in, in Western Massachusetts and Connecticut, and it spreads throughout New England. And it's a beautification movement. It's it's usually referred to as the village the village improvement movement. And so the village improvers, the, the first and most significant thing they do uh, project they undertake is the planting of these elm trees. Um, and, and that is what leads to the tree bee. Uh, the tree bee was uh, uh, the earliest example that I've come across of a mass planting effort, right? So everybody in the town of Sheffield gets together and they plant dozens, if not, you know, uh, thousands of, of trees. Yeah. Yeah. Hundreds of, of elm saplings um, and whips uh, and over time, Sheffield becomes renowned for its beautiful, um, you know, elm-lined streets and commons. There was um, an intellectual meeting place in Western Mass that involved the Sketch Club. Mm -hmm. I'm about the Sketch Club. And that is William Cullen Bryant. Who's in the Sketch right. Club? The Sketch Club, as I recall, it was a, a group of, you know, was a literary group and um, artists who and, and I, I talk about it because I, I um, th there was a, a certain connection there between the this village improvement movement and these the embrace of the elm in Western Massachusetts and the Berkshires and the literary scene in New York City. Um, so there's a, you know, there's a, there's a connection there to the larger emerging society or culture of the, um, of the, you know, United States and New York. And it's artists too, right? The Hudson yeah. The yeah. School and exactly. um, Emerson. And, yeah, there's, there's this, this, I, I describe it as the environmental awakening. There, there's this, there's this movement that um, you know, that emerges in this period. And the village improvement movement is, is, is a good example of one of its expressions, right? Uh, there's, there's this sense that prior to the, the environmental awakening, nature was a resource to be exploited, right? And it's the environmental awakening that, that um, it's very much rooted in, in um, romanticism coming, you know, from France and elsewhere in the old world. Um, but it's a it's a whole new attitude to the natural, uh, you know, about the natural world and one that is much more about um, uh, respecting and uh, admiring and, and nurturing um, the uh, the values therein instead of just an exploitative uh, stance. And this is, you know, the 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 transcendentalists come out of this larger milieu, the Hudson River School of Painters of landscape painting comes out of this milieu. And, and in a more quotidian, prosaic way, you've got the village improvers. Uh, Andrew Jackson Downey is also part of this. He's writing about mm -hmm. you know, the, the improvement of one's home grounds, right? And this whole, what um, you know, this new um, uh, yearning for spatial beauty, as I think John Stilgo, at, at, uh, the landscape historian at Harvard, put it. 
So back to Thoreau, he came just after this or was he part of? Well, he's part of the, he's a core, you know, part of the transcendentalist movement. That's, that's where I don't think he was a sketch club. And, um, but he definitely influenced by them and knew Emerson, obviously. Yeah. And, and William Cullen Bryant is a major part of this whole, you know, embrace of nature and the natural world. There's also a nationalistic dimension here because, you know, uh, you know, and 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 Downing writes about this too. Um, you know, there's this sense. You know, you mentioned earlier that Americans in the early um, Republic and the early 19th century had this 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 cultural inferiority complex, where anything of any value, right, artistic, literary, had to come from the old world, right? Uh, anything created, written, thought of here, really didn't have much you know, gravitas because it was an upstart nation, um, that starts changing. It starts changing in the Jacksonian period. And by the time you get to, you know, the mid middle years of the 19th century, it's, um, it's not just expressed in an embrace of native trees, but, but a, a, a stance that looks to the natural world, right. And the extraordinary heritage of North America the natural heritage, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, the, you know, the the um, the Shenandoahs, the, the Blue Ridge Mounts, the Adirondacks, um, Americans start looking to that as the as the equivalent. Right. And more of the cultural um, achievements of the old world. So the old world has its Parthenon, its Pantheon, its, you know, its extraordinary uh, architectural heritage and the ruins in, you know, of, of the Roman era and the medieval landscapes of, of Northern Europe. Um, and Americans say, well, that's great. You have all that, but we have these, these ex- extraordinary places, these extraordinary um, natural monuments that are from directly from the hand of the creator. So they're saying, ah, we we're one upping because this is nature's nation. This is a place uniquely blessed by God. In his writing, Thoreau found a place for the elm tree in the center of all this. But as we'll see after the break, the American elm also symbolized higher ideals, specifically the anti-slavery movement. This is This Old Tree. about to happen and the abolitionist movement is tearing the country apart essentially and he uses elm trees i don't know if specifically the, the elm tree that that we're talking about as a metaphor for the abolitionist movement yeah. and the, the free soil party could you talk about that yeah yeah i you know the details of this will escape me but he he uh he uses the elm as a symbol of the, uh, well, you know, this is a period when there's this, um, you know, the free soilers and there's this um, struggle over whether, you know, not, not only the, the Fugitive Slave Act, which um, basically um, criminalized any, anyone who was assisted a, a slave escaping 
um, the South, but um, there was a, a, a fight over whether slavery should be extended West, right? And that's the, and the Free Soil Party is in response to that. Exactly, right. He's very facile in, you know, adapting the metaphor of the American elm and these trees to various political uh, issues of the day. Could I, could I read you a passage from your yes. book or read our, for our listeners, that is? Yeah, yeah please. The elms, write Thoreau, are free soilers in their own broad sense. They send their roots north and south and east and west into many a conservative's Kansas and Carolina, who does not suspect such underground railroads. They improve the subsoil he has never disturbed, and many times their length, if support of their principles requires it. They battle with the tempests of a century. See what scars they bear, what limbs they they've lost before we were born, yet they never adjourn. They steadily vote for their principles and send their roots further and wider from the same center. They die at their posts and they leave a tough butt for the choppers to <laughs> exercise themselves about and a stump which serves for their monument. That, that's just such an extraordinary passage. And so, I mean, he wrote like an angel. Um, but it's such a, a powerful metaphor for this, you know, the, the, um, the values and the principles of the abolition abolitionists and the abolitionist movement. There's another sort of, he extends the metaphor in this beautiful way and talks about how the center of the L may decay, but the growth is really in, in the rings yeah. of the tree and the, so the cambium under the bar. Cambium, right. And that is new. Right. Yeah. And I think he's talking, he's referring to the, the renewal of the movement and the passage or the passing on of these principles and values to a younger generation. So what you write sort of along those lines, you know, I, we, we talk about trees being witness trees to the past and how they were in the same place that many historic events happened and important yep. people were and they sort of draw our memory back. Right. But you wrote just that um, the trees over time put on new rings of growth and it's right. not really the same tree it was in the past and that each sort of generation after that gets to experience the tree in its own way and add their own history to it. So, so in many New England towns and cities, um, the, these, these, um, so-called, and in the rural landscape too, these these uh, solitary elms, and they were mostly elms, but not always, right? They, there are witness oaks, there are other trees, but it's almost, uh, it's more common that the these witness trees were American elms, and they tend to be elms of uh, substantial size and, and beauty and form. Um, and one of the things I discovered was that they're, they tended to draw to them historical events that occurred in the general area, but not necessarily right there. Uh, and over time, they come to be um, representative of the event and in that location. But in most cases, that wasn't- Not necessarily right under that no, tree. No, not necessarily right under there. So there's this remarkable, and this taps into what I was talking about, what we were talking about earlier about the, you know, nature's nation versus the the um you know the stones of the old world right the the um the 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 ruins the architectural ruins so what is a more appropriate monument for this young nation is it the marble sir you know the marble um uh obelisk or is it a great 
old tree and and reputed remnant of the original forest. And very few of these trees were remnants of the Aboriginal forest, as was often um, said. Um, there was a witness tree on the Boston Common, for example, where all sorts of associations were sort of tied to. Um, and it, it was the, the Great Elm. And that was what it was called, the Great Elm of Boston Common. And in the book, you probably saw this, this is this remarkable photograph of all the Methodist ministers um, of New England gathered for a meeting. And they where do they gather? Not in front of a Methodist church, right? Uh, but under this great witness tree. Another example is the, the Washington Elm, which I mentioned earlier in Cambridge, which was said to be where Washington, you know, he stood under this great elm when he took command of the Continental Troops at the outset of the revolution. Well, when the tree finally came down, which, by the way, was was blamed on communists um, uh, that they had somehow sabotaged the tree, uh, the rings were counted. And alas, you know, if. If Washington took command of the troops under this tree, he would have been crouching a small tree. below a little sapling. Yeah. So, yeah. There's something about, about this being a, a living thing that was alive yes. at that time. It's alive now. And it's it, somewhat it a, different yeah. than a building. The buildings exactly. were there, but we don't venerate the buildings in the same way. We do. We do now. I think we do now. But but um, but yeah, there was there the, the, the fact that this was a living being right that this was a living entity that witnessed this passage and it it literally puts you into this continuum right instead of an inert an inertness that a building or a, a stone or, or monument would do it's a powerful thought this seems to be just a very human reaction to old trees across cultures oh, really yeah, and over so. over time yeah. and i'm wondering well it is i mean there are many cultures where you have the, a tree often of a particular species that plays a role uh, a sacred role or you know a, a right. quasi sacred role the role the bow tree the saba tree in in central or central latin america the bow tree in parts of of asia and the american elm i would say is the closest thing we've had in the country to a a sacred tree and and often very much in a religious dimension as i said earlier when you have the this notion of the the unhewn cathedrals right and the best example of that which was world famous was temple street literally temple street in new haven which is the uh, street that cuts right across um the new haven green uh, and it was lined with elms um very closely too closely it turns out planted um, and and it created this extraordinary, you know, and, and uh, Dickens, when he visits, he, he visited, uh, I think, in the 1840s, he, he made this very um, celebrated trip to to America and he writes about it. All right. He, he visits the Temple Street. It's on his list. It's on his bucket list there with Niagara Falls and, and New York City um, uh, to see this uh, remarkable example of American space. I think one thing that drew me to this story in 1856 of this tree coming down is that, you know, we do this now. We we venerate old trees and love them and um, recognize them. But here was Thoreau doing the same thing in a way 100 and 
50, 160 years ago. And we seem to do this almost in every era. Like we're looking back to it another time. Yeah. Yeah. But he, I mean, he, you know, really is, is at the forefront of this because he's coming out of an era when we Americans did not really look to the natural world and with that, those with through a lens like that, it was, like I said earlier, it was much more exploitative. Yeah. And it's not just a simple act of nostalgia to write about this tree either. He's looking to the future. He's looking at his current time. Sure. And the future. So just to wrap up, I I have a question for you. Um, Before you studied landscape architecture and urban planning and became a professor, you studied forestry. Yeah, I did. Right. ESF. And that's the the college of environmental science and forestry in Syracuse. Syracuse. Right. And so you've had a long love of trees yourself and interest in their ecology. What meaning does the Davis Elm, as some people call it, or the American Elm in general, if you prefer, have for you? I can point to the exact moment and place where I fell in love with the American Elm. It was the, the, I grew up in Brooklyn and my mom used to bring us, my brother and I, to the American Museum of Natural History quite often because it was right on, you know, from, from, from Brooklyn, from our part of Brooklyn, it was the, I think it was back then it was the D train. Now it's the B train, but, and it would, you know, there was a stop right there at the museum and we would go and in the hall of North American forests uh, or hall of North American trees, there was, there were two exhibits that just moved me um, enormously. One was an enormous section of a, uh, of a redwood it may have been a sequoia, like a slab. It was American. It was a, a California redwood, and it had you know the rings were very visible, and it had little markers showing you know the fall of the Roman Empire and and this, you know, the fact that this was a record of you know basically you know this enormous passage in human history that just you know and, and when I finally went out west myself I I worked for many summers as a firefighter um with the United States Forest Service I remember that was one of the things I I first went to see were were the redwoods but across in this one exhibit hall across from the redwood section was a very evocative backlit painting and it was titled simply the um, the um, the elm in new england and it was this very evocative you know romantic scene of these arching elm trees looking down a road um into like this pastoral new england landscape and i think there was a farmer there and little farm settlement and it it just there was something about that image that just so moved me and i also remember remember this is the early 70s and when we would go with my 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 family when we would go up to the Adirondacks for, you know, an extended weekend or, you know, the once a year family road trip. Um, My dad would point out the skeletal remains of these dead elm trees, because this was the period when a lot of these great elms were still present in the landscape. They were dead. And there were actually a a fair number that were still living. I remember at the Saratoga Springs, um, at the actual historic site, the Springs, there were a couple of enormous, beautiful elms that, uh, you know, that I actually still have the photos, the slides. And so I was I was very moved from an early age um, by this tree. And like you said, I 
um, I, I fell in love with trees generally. I just, I just uh, really loved trees, and um, and uh, partly it's it was from you know summer summer camp and um, and Bear Mountain. I remember I used to identify all the trees on the trails around Hessian Lake. So I did. I, I studied forestry, and then as I said, I worked um, summers with the Forest Service, uh, and uh, and in the process of studying forestry, I. I discovered landscape architecture, which had that creative dimension to it that I really um, uh, found fascinating. Well, I really enjoyed our conversation today. You mentioned that, um, I mean, you're, you work on a lot of things, but you mentioned some work on trees that you're doing now. Yeah, I'm actually working on a book um, that is um, uh, really, you know, tracing the roots, quote unquote, of three um, New York trees, right? And they're not germane to exclusively New York City, but they're prominent entities in New York's urban landscape. And uh, one is the American elm. Uh, we, we've talked about two of the three, uh, the American elm. One is the Atlantis um, tree of heaven. And the third is the London plain, uh, which, and, and the book is organized obviously in three parts. Uh, it begins with the elm and that's called the patrician. Uh, and then there's the the um, the the whole part of the book. The second part is about the London Plain, which is called the Cosmopolitan, uh, and and that's a reference to the London Plain. I'm sure you know this is is a is a hybrid. It, it was an accidental right. hybrid between the American sycamore and the Asian uh, or Oriental Asian sycamore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The the uh, and and this this combined to create really one of the best street trees we've ever had. It's not quite as as romantically beautiful as the American elm, but it's very tenacious and fast growing. And then the third part of the book is about the Atlantis, and that's called the immigrant. So it's the patrician, the cosmopolitan, and the immigrant. It's fun I'm having a blast with it because I'm I'm writing about obviously the cultural histories of these these trees. And how they came to gain a presence in our landscape. Can't wait for that to come <laughs> out and, and to read it. Maybe I'll have you back. Yeah, that'd be great. When that happens. And But thanks again. Really Thank enjoyed you, our conversation. I, I've enjoyed it too. Take care. Thank you, tree lovers, for joining us on this journey through the early history of the American elm. And thanks very much to Thomas Campanella for coming on the show and sharing his great book, Republic of Shade, New England and the American Elm. Martha Douglas Osmondson was a consulting editor. The theme music is by arborist and songwriter Dee Lee, and Dan Hiuni created the artwork. Catch us on Facebook or Instagram to see photos and related posts, and visit the website at thisoldtree.show. Concord lost that elm tree, but Thoreau still has us talking about it. Hopefully together, we can slow the indiscriminate removal of large, healthy trees. The next time you see it happening, speak up. Thoreau would have your back. I'm Doug Still, and this was This Old Tree. See you next time. This old tree Standing here for more than four centuries Wonder what you'd say you could talk to me about what it's like to be this old tree